now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the third episode of the 2018 NIJ R&D season, Just Science speaks with Dr. David Carter, Director and Associate Professor of Forensic Sciences at Chaminade University of Honolulu, about his research evaluating the skin microbiome as trace evidence on common surface types. Microbiome trace evidence samples can be tracked back to individuals with high accuracy and used to narrow pools of suspects, even when multiple people have touched the surface. This potential for microorganisms to reveal whether a particular person has touched an object is substantial. Listen along as Dr. Morgan and Dr. Carter discuss the implications of these findings as they apply to forensic science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. My name is John Morgan. I'm your host. I'm with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. And today we are at the American Academy of Forensic Science meeting in Seattle, Washington. We are here today with Dr. David O. Carter who uh, got his PhD from James Cook University in Townsville, Australia. Where's Townsville in Australia? Uh, Townsville is in the northeast part of Australia, up in the tropics. If you were to drive there from Brisbane, it'd be about a 16-hour drive north of Brisbane. What was your PhD in? They put me in the Department of Biochemistry there. Do they do uh, a lot of forensic science or pathology-related things, or how did you wind up there? Wow, that's a story in itself. No, it? they're not it's really gotta be. known. Who yeah. winds up in Townsville? Yeah, exactly. No, they're not, not really associated with a formal forensic science program. They are associated with a, a regional medical center. So uh -huh. pathology does have a presence there. Uh, really, my story is one of those graduate student stories where my research advisor, who is a guy named Mark Tibbet, he was in the process of relocating to Australia because he was offered a job. And he basically asked me if I was interested in going along with him. He ended up working for a group in Australia called CSIRO, which would be kind of roughly equivalent to, say, like the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And James Cook University is in the same town. And it was just an opportunity that kind of presented itself and worked itself out. Sounds like the middle of nowhere, but in a good way. That is a very good way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's gone from Australia, uh, and without picking up the accent, at least not that I could tell, to become director and associate professor of forensic sciences at Chaminade University of Honolulu. Yes. And serves as the principal investigator of the Laboratory of Forensic Taphonomy. And his primary research in interest is the decomposition of human remains, particularly in tropical environments. So I guess in some respects, Honolulu and Townsville are both tropical environments in, in some sense, I guess. Definitely, definitely. They, they do have some differences in their climates. For example, Townsville does have a very clear wet season and dry season. Honolulu does not, but they both uh, have very similar temperatures throughout the year. So at the American Academy of Forensic Science, every year NIJ and the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence put together a research symposium 
and uh, you presented some of the work that you've been doing in this area and particularly looking at the microbiome associated with decomposition, is that right? That's right, yes. So you were doing biochemistry, so at what point did you really move off into looking at the decomposition of remains and specifically into looking at the microbial signatures there? I really started that process as a master's student. I started studying microbes, it would have been late 1999, early 2000. I first got into forensic science at the master's level and that's when I was introduced to you know all the general areas of forensic science but the one area I was really drawn to was death investigation. I don't necessarily know why. I, I still don't know why really. I just find it particularly interesting. And you know, going back to Mark Tibbet, who provided me with an opportunity to go down to Australia, he was my research advisor and he introduced me to microorganisms in many ways. And you know, he taught me that microbes are everywhere and one of their main roles is to decompose things. You know, sure. And they decompose all kinds of things, you know, plant stuff and, and dead bodies and fruits and whatever. It was really around 2000 that I started looking into this concept of microbes. We used the term back then microbial biomass a lot, really kind of looking at a microbial community or a microbiome as kind of a black box because we didn't have the technology that we do now. You know, now we can go in and look at a microbial community at a level of detail that is well, unprecedented. As I was mentioning before we started recording, we, we actually recorded earlier today with Bruce Badoli a, a podcast in this area because we, but he's not looking at decomposition. He's looking at the microbiome as a way of determining, basically improving touch DNA work, right? So if you're leaving a bacteria on a surface, can you be associated with that surface? But uh, he's looking at 16-sRNA, right, to basically get a genetic picture of that microbiome in practice. And that just wasn't possible, really, not that long ago to even contemplate. Are you actually, when you're looking at this, uh, at this problem set, are you looking at it from a pure genetics perspective in terms of the sampling, in terms of understanding what microbiome is there? Or are you actually identifying particular species and and as we might in the old days have, you know, just sort of growing them up, as it were. Uh, how's it working in terms of actually understanding what's in the microbiome that's relevant to your work? You know, we do both. I actually get the most enjoyment and fun out of the culturing. That's where I get a lot of my happiness, culturing and, and looking at microbes. But like you mentioned, the capability of being able to sequence a 16S data set, and we do some 18S data sets as well, we just feel it's important to look at, use both approaches. In forensic science, really the best approaches are the ones that are cheap, quick, simple, and reliable. You know, and that's kind of what culturing is. You sure. Know, it's easy to culture microbes. It doesn't take very long. Yeah. The problem is, is they, they don't love give you a lot it. of insight. You <laughs> yeah. Know, you can only culture so many. And so it, I really like using the combined approach to try and get a, a better big picture. One of my favorite experiences is when I look at a data set that you get from a sequence where you get a list of thousands of taxa, and when I see the ones that I can grow, mm -hmm. that's just really cool for me. You know, sure. Micrococcus luteus or Bacillus subtilis. You know, when I can see the sequencing is saying some microbes are important, 
and we can also culture those same ones. I, right. I just find that really exciting. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. So part of your research is confusing me. You actually are looking at two different kinds of approaches to the microbiome, which aren't necessarily the same issue. One is, you know, the, the same kind of things that Bruce was looking at. When you touch different surfaces, what gets left behind from the microbiome. And then the other, which is very, very different, which is the microbiome associated with decomposition. So how closely are those two related in your mind? And from a research perspective, how do you look at the two different ones? Well, that's a great question. In my mind, they are strongly related, and this is why. When a body starts to decompose, we know that the microbial communities start to change, okay? In Hawaii, you start to see significant postmortem changes like that around 48 hours after death if that's about the soonest they would happen if a body's outside and allowed to decompose. We don't know exactly when those processes start. You know, we know that we see them after about 48 hours, but we also know that there's this period after a person dies where their skin microbial community still resembles what it was like during life. So to me, one of the valuable things about looking at the microbes on living people and how they're transferred to objects is it does give me some insight into that early postmortem period when a decedent will still carry that personalized microbial signature with them which is then taken over by the decomposer communities so you could very much study these two areas totally exclusively of one another but just to me in my mind for some reason they are very strongly related because from what I've noticed, before everybody dies, they're always alive. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? That's, how, that's usually how it yeah, works. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. How, funny how it yeah. works that way. <laughs> so it's really good to know what the, the word we use is antemortem, before death. So it's really important to know what the antemortem microbial community is so we can try and figure out when it starts to change. You know, so they are two different approaches and two different applications, but to me they are very much linked to one another. So your interest really in looking at different surfaces is, is as much about trying to understand a sampling methodology, both anti-mortem and post-mortem to some degree? I mean, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And so what kinds of surfaces have you been looking at with respect to uh, kind of what we, the little detritus that we leave behind as we go about our days? You know, so far we've, you know, gone out and purchased uh, different surface types that you'd find at any home improvement store, you know, uh, tiles that are made of ceramic, plastic, glass, like a normal glass window pane, wood, like wood paneling you'd find on the inside of a dwelling, and metal, like a aluminum metal sheet. Sure. So those are the surface types that we've done our touch experiments on. And why those in particular, those are all kind of hard objects, kind of things that you might make furniture or countertops and things like that. So like not clothing or things like that. Yeah, they're flat, relatively smooth, and those interests are really coming from the traditional fingerprint friction ridge pattern community. You know, flat, smooth surfaces take friction ridge patterns the best and hold them the best. So we were interested in that parallel, but we also wanted to get surface types that are commonly encountered. You know, glass window panes are common. People touch glass window panes. You know, ceramics common in bathrooms and kitchens. So it was a combination of those attributes we were going after. So surfaces can vary a great deal with respect to how easy it is to develop fingerprints off of them. 
yes. mostly with respect to the oils that are left behind, uh, usually are very important in that regard. Uh, is that similar to how you might see the variations among surfaces with respect to the microbiome as well? Well, we are seeing differences on the surface types. For example, we're getting good profiles off of ceramic and plastic surfaces, but we don't really know why. With the friction ridge patterns, like you say, the, the oils and the sweat, it seems to be a little more straightforward. You know, you have a flat, smooth surface and those deposits are able to rest there. With the microbes, we don't know, you know, are some microbes maybe more sticky than others? Is there something about the different surfaces that attract microbes better? That, that aspect of it, we don't understand. We're just at these early stages now where we're seeing differences between these surfaces. And now it would be really interesting to try and figure out why these differences exist. Now you've mentioned a few different kinds of species. I mean, I'm used to certain things like, you know, staph and, uh, and that kind of thing. I didn't know that the skin held a lot of bacillus. Does the skin hold a fair amount of bacillus as well? Because there's hundreds of species that oh. were on our skins, right? Oh, there's many more than that. Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah. pretty disgusting when you think about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've been able to culture quite a few bacillus species. Mostly what you see from the skin, in my experience, is coming from a phylum called actinobacteria. And that's a phylum where that's just kind of what you'd normally have represented on your skin anyway. And bacillus is not in that phylum. It's in a phylum called Firmicutes or Firmicutes. Uh, one of the difficult things about microbiology is everybody pronounces these words differently, okay. so it's kind of hard to follow here. along. That's fine. You know? That's good. You know, the skin's actually a really interesting habitat because I don't know if a lot of people realize you should probably consider the skin as a pretty harsh habitat. You know, it's dry. It's kind of salty. It's exposed to the environment or it always has clothes rubbing on it, mm -hmm. or you're applying some type of cosmetic or lotion or something to it. And for some reason, a lot of the bacteria out of actinobacteria seem to be able to deal with that stuff pretty well. So the next question is, I'm not sure I agree that there's a lot of commonality anti and post-mortem for skin bacteria, because it was always my understanding that it was your gut bacteria that had the biggest impact on decomposition. Well, you know, that's a very good point you make because there's one process associated with decomposition called putrefaction, and that is very much driven by the microbes in your gut. They start to proliferate after death because the thinking is your body runs out of oxygen and a lot of those microbes can't tolerate oxygen. So now that oxygen isn't there, they can start to decompose. The remains start to bloat because they release gases just like you and I do. But one thing we're finding is that the skin and with bodies that are placed on soil outside, really the skin microbes and the soil microbes tend to be the most predictable microbes over the course of decomposition. So yes, you're correct when you say gut microbes play a major role in decomposing these remains. But you will eventually hit a point to where oxygen is allowed back into the gut because the body decomposes to such an extent that it either ruptures open or it decomposes itself open in another way. And then at that point, some of those gut microbes, they just can't compete anymore because oxygen is toxic to them. So there is a, a bit of a give and take there between the, the skin microbes and the gut microbes. 
Okay, fair enough. And then, of course, the other aspect of it would be the uh, insects like maggots and things like that. And they're bringing their own microbial population with them as well. Are they influenced by the human microbial population, or how do we understand the interactions there? Is that something that's still to be determined? Yeah, they appear to be. There has been some work done, not by any work I'm really associated with, where some of the microbes that would be associated with decomposing remains, they will release chemicals that attract these insects to the remains. Mm -hmm. And insects will regularly act as really a transport service, you know, like a, a taxi or I guess an airplane might be the best analogy because a lot of them are flies where they can bring microbes to remains. They're probably also taking some away with them to other remains. And that might actually be one of the main ways that microbes would travel from carcass to carcass, is using insects to do that. Sure. All that connection, I think, is fascinating. So let's go back anti-mortem here a little bit. You say something which is very extraordinary. This is an extraordinary statement and kind of a bold one. And I'd like to have you back this up. We find that microbiome trace evidence samples can be tracked back to individuals with high accuracy and used to narrow pools of suspects even when multiple people have touched a surface and the reference microbiome was collected the year previously. So let's just run through that. So I, if you collect a reference microbiome on me now and a year from now I'm running around committing a crime and, you know, I'm touching the orange juice or whatever the heck it is at the scene. And other people have touched the orange juice. And you're saying you can associate me with that orange juice from the reference microbiome you collected today. That's an extraordinary statement. That is possible. One of the really intriguing things that we have found, because we did a series of experiments where two people touch the same object. Okay, so it's not a lot of people. I, I'll be fair. Fair that's fine. You know? And one thing we found that I'm still wrapping my head around is that some people just seem to be better at depositing microbes on surfaces than others. So the study we Clammy did... Clammy skin? What is it? I mean, I, I, yeah, it, it, well, it's kind of like the surface thing. We don't really know why. Okay. You know, but this experiment that we did and I talked about yesterday is that we had one person touch a surface. We had them touch it 30 times and we let the surface sit for an hour. And then we had a second person touch the surface 20 times and then we swabbed that surface. And then the following day, we had them do it again, but we switched the order of them. So I the see. person that touched first on day one, they touched second on day two. And we found that the order of the touch doesn't necessarily end up being the same person that that profile matches to. Sometimes the first person leaves the stronger signal. Sometimes the second person leaves the stronger signal. So I'll repeat my answer to your question. It's possible. Sure. So what does it mean to say that you have a reference sample on my microbiome? How do you collect such a reference sample and what does it consist of? Well, that would be like any known reference sample you would collect. Say you collected a person's fingerprints. You know, you apply for a job or something and they ink and roll your fingers or nowadays they do it in a live scan system. So a reference sample really means you know where it came from. It has a known origin or like a human DNA sample where they swab your cheek and they say, okay, here's the sequence, here's the known identity. That's easier though, because I can see the fingerprint. Getting my microbiome reference sample isn't as simple as it is with respect to fingerprints and DNA. It's, it's not as static and it's not as easy to see. You have to develop it in some way looking at the genetic profile or as we said, culture it up or something. 
Well, it's definitely not as simple as those things, I'll <laughs> tell you that. Hence um, the need for research, I know. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Your microbial community will vary by body site, so that is part of the reference. You know, it was collected from this area. Our research has really been focusing on the palm. If you're following any of our recent research, you know, that, that would be our reference samples we're talking about is the palm. So, I mean, the ideal way is you would sample somebody over a period of time and you would build a large reference sample for them. The reason why you would do that is to capture any variations that might take place in your microbiome. Travel, for example, really can affect your microbiome. You know, it might affect your gut microbiome, being up in an airplane, changing diet for sure. brief periods of time like that. So the but ideal thing for is some over period time. of time. Oh, well, over the course of your adult lifetime, the word they use to describe it is stable. You know, it, oh, yeah? it, it okay. will have minor variations due to certain things, but your microbiome is your microbiome as an mm -hmm. adult. And further that it's different from your microbiome. Correct. And, and that's the result of what? Why would that be? Because, you know, we all live in similar environments, you know, and our uh, diets can vary, but it's not incredible variants. Now, we do have a genetic component. Is there a theory or model for what causes variations in the microbiome, especially the skin one? I don't think anybody knows like what percentage each factor contributes to your microbiome, but you know, you are dealing with are there any medications you're taking? You know, what environment do you live in? You know, we do probably all live inside of a built environment, but you know, how much do we clean? You know, do you have carpets or do you have pets? What is your general lifestyle? You know, do you exercise regularly? Do you consume a lot of alcohol? Do you use drugs? Are you taking probiotics or antibiotics? What types of cosmetics or other products are you putting on your skin? So there are a lot of variables that can help to define your microbiome in addition to the, the genetic factor you mentioned. Sure, and I guess part of this is you, you mentioned how hardy like a actinobacteria, yeah. actinobacteria are in particular and I guess many of the other skin bacteria must be. And I guess that suggests that their hardiness uh, suggests that there might be uh, a reason for it to be sustained and stable, or at least reasonably so. Yeah, I think one important thing people need to accept when you just think about microbes in general, regardless of what habitat you're talking about, skin, soil, you've got to accept that it's all about competition. I mean, all of these organisms are living from meal to meal. It would be like you and I living without a refrigerator, without a grocery store. You know, we're hunter-gatherers, right? So a lot of that hardiness is a result of they have developed a strategy to stay alive. They have found a habitat in which they can compete to stay alive, and in many cases they can outcompete others to stay alive. It's really important to consider that competition aspect. You know, a lot of things I tell students is, Microbes don't have Costco. You know, they, they, <laughs> they can't go to yeah. Safeway or whatever your grocery store is. You know, they're really living like a hunter-gatherer would. Yeah. Know? So it's a different strategy. So you make another bold claim here, and that is we found that household and personal objects could still be linked with a person after death. We have found that. Okay, so linked to a person after death, how long after death? in terms of the sampling are you talking? So are you talking day of? You're saying that it's fairly stable for a couple of days after death. 
that statement is based on a data set that would have been completed within 24 hours of death. And these are all associated with what you could probably call a routine death investigation, which means person passes away, they're reported to the medical examiner's office or the coroner's office, and that death scene is responded to within hours of death, and they're transported to the morgue, placed in the morgue cooler within hours of death, and then autopsy the following morning. So in that scenario, we have been able to associate those handheld objects at their place of death. And we're talking about things like doorknobs, keys, smartphones. So in that period where they're not, technically they are decomposing, but it's been slowed down so much because they've been placed in a cooler. There's not enough time that's lapsed to allow the decomposers to take over. Fair enough. That's my explanation. So how, how unique is that profile? I mean, so to the exclusion of the five other people who might have been in that room or to the exclusion of, you know, a million other people or how strong is that association? That is a very insightful question. That data set comes from a project where we went to about 20 death scenes. And you're probably going to be kind of disappointed with this answer. Just by pure coincidence, pretty much all those death scenes involve somebody that lived alone. We really didn't have to deal with a scenario where they had a spouse, children, and that was just happenstance. You know, you don't have control over sure. who dies and what were scenes you go deaths, to. Or? All of these were, yes. Okay. So 20 natural deaths of uh -huh. people who mostly lived alone. Yep. And who you were able to sample relatively soon post-mortem. Yes. And then you went back to their home? We swabbed the objects while we were at the scene investigating the death. So the first time we swabbed the decedent's palm was right around the same time we swabbed their objects. And then we swabbed the decedent again once they arrived at the morgue. And then every six hours after that up until autopsy. Because we wanted to try and track if there, when does that change occur? Does it occur? And it doesn't look like it does under those normal, I kind of hesitate to use the word routine because, I don't know, death investigations, there's always something non-routine associated sure. with them. But in that scenario, it seems like they remain pretty stable. So these were natural deaths, but they were all people who, for one reason or another, also had some sort of attending response going on that led to autopsy. So there was something, something unusual about these people in that regard, I guess. Yeah, that's right. And some general reasons why that would happen would be you have a person that they just don't go see a doctor regularly. So they really don't have a medical history. So in that scenario, the medical examiner or the coroner really steps in and in a way kind of acts as their primary healthcare provider. Well, let's say I go see my doctor regularly, right? In fact, I'm due for a physical. If I were to pass away at home of natural causes, my wife would probably find me pretty soon. And odds are I would not go to the medical examiner's office because I would have this medical history and my primary healthcare provider would probably end up signing that death certificate. Right, I'm assuming just because of the, it's the real world when you're doing these experiments, that the samples you took from their objects weren't exactly the same as the samples you took from the bodies, right? But you use some sort of algorithm to associate them. So if you were blind to association of the particular person with a place, 
would you have been able to uniquely identify uh, which person went with which living place? That's the whole strategy. It's meant to be treated as a blind approach. Yeah. You know, um, where mostly working with Zach at UCSD, where we've been using this random forest classification system. It's really interesting, and I'm probably not the best person to ask really fine-tuned details about it, but it provides you an opportunity to train a data set where you give it these reference samples and then you use that trained data set to make these predictions. And it's meant to be able to do it blind, like you say. Sure, random force has been used an awful lot in uh, different kinds of criminal justice contexts. It's a very powerful right. technique. Right, and for somebody that's sitting there thinking, what the heck is random forest? You know, the way I think about it in most simplest terms is if you can imagine a decision tree where it, you ask a question and you choose between yes and no, and then depending on whether the answer is yes or no, you ask another question and the answer is either yes or no, you'd call that a tree. Well, essentially the random forest approach is a bunch of decision trees, and that's where the forest part of the name comes from. Sure. Another uh, analogy is the, the one that I think is the most famous use of it is uh, Larry Sherman's data with uh, Philadelphia parolees. And so the idea is we know like 50 different kinds of things about these parolees that are coming out into the world. You know, their original sentence and how long that they were in, when they went in, their age of relieving, all this other stuff. But we're not going to assume we know anything about what's relevant or not. And we're just going to take the whole bunch of data and we're going to throw it into a random forced kind of algorithm and we're gonna have it tell us who is most likely to engage in violence in the year after release. And that algorithm is like fantastic. It's yeah. like, so it will tell you uh, which hundred parolees from Philadelphia in a particular year are 50% likely to be involved in homicide, either as a victim or a perpetrator. Very, very powerful way of looking at the data and sounds like a perfect application for what you're trying to do as well. Yeah, agreed. You know, another variable regarding the touched objects that we don't know is how long has it been since they've touched those objects, right? Because we don't even necessarily know exactly when they died. We can tell it hasn't been that long because there's really no post-mortem changes. But did they touch that doorknob right before they passed away? Did they touch that doorknob the night before? That's one thing we'll probably never know because you go into a scene and you know nobody's monitoring these things. So. That is a variable that I think it is important to just acknowledge exists when you're trying to associate these decedents with those handheld objects is you don't really know when they touched them last. Well, yeah, and by its nature also you're looking, I understand what you're saying about them being hardy organisms, but to some extent also this approach is going to favor like gram-positive and sporulating kinds of bacteria that just love to just get themselves into a dormant state and sit there, right? And so they'll be nice and stable and ready for you to sample them and match them up to the uh, decedent. Well, there's certainly a lot of those that we see regularly. And um, I do think that being able to develop vegetative state, a resistant state, a resting structure, whatever phrase you want to use, I do think that is probably a very successful strategy for some of those microbes. So yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Now you presented this at the research symposium yesterday. I hope we've been able to represent it reasonably. Tell us more about what you presented yesterday for the folks listening to the podcast. Yeah, sure. We recently finished a two-year project, and most of that project was to 
look into just really fundamental aspects of those relationships between touching objects and transferring your microbes to them. So one of the fundamental questions was, does surface type affect the quality of the microbial community you get off of a surface? Another question was, how many times do you need to touch a surface to leave a viable signal? Another question was that mixture that we talked about a bit ago where we had two people touch. And that's important to remember, we only had two people touch an object. You know, you might have a scenario where six people are touching an object. Sure. That's kind of where we started with some of those basic questions. And as, as a, a byproduct of some of the experiments, we were also to get some insight into how long a microbial signal will last on a surface. Mm -hmm. So some of the things we found was when we had a donor touch a surface 30 times, that gave us much better accuracy than when they touched it 20 times or 10 times. So the more you touch a surface, the better signal you leave. Now, that's interesting finding because in many ways, that's the opposite of friction ridge patterns. You know, if you keep touching a surface, you're just going to smudge it up. You just smudge it and you get ridges on ridges and they're all over the place. So that's one example where microbes are different than friction ridge patterns. You know, the differences between the surface types that's a similarity with friction ridge patterns. If you talk to any latent print examiner, they'll tell you probably the most important variable when it comes to leaving a fingerprint on a surface is what's the surface made of? Does it sure. have any texture to it? We conducted an experiment where we took samples 18 hours after surfaces were touched and we were still getting viable signals after 18 hours. Our point was not to go further than that, so we don't know how long they do last, but we were getting some after 18 hours. Sure. So it's interesting because what, I mean, to some extent, you know, it's kind of very, very fundamental, old forensic science, you know, Edmund Locard, every, every touch leaves a trace, right? Except this is like a, a trace probably he never imagined that one would ever use in forensic science. But it is a trace that does exist and is out there, and there's all sorts of other elements of it as well. There's proteins and viruses and all sorts of odd little things probably associated with it. I'm so happy you brought up Edmund Locard because two things. Man, if he were alive today, he would probably be thrilled and blown away at some of these ideas. But not a lot of people, I think, know that Edmund Locard used microbes too. I had you know, no idea. Yeah, there's a series of papers that came out in 1929, 1930, where he was using algae, fungi, to associate bodies with locations of death and trying to associate microbes with different parts of cities hmm. based on the types of microbes that they could culture. I mean, that, that's the right. only approach they had then. So Edmund Locard and Louis Pasteur, you know, that their paths really aren't very different from one another. So it, that's one aspect of Locard's career that for some reason doesn't really get see much light of day, but he was aware of microbes to a certain extent. Oh, that's really exciting. Yeah. I learned so I love the history of science, oh, and especially the history of forensic science. Oh, me too. And yeah. another thing I don't think a lot of people realize is postmortem microbiology is one of the oldest areas of forensic science. You know, it's relatively easy to find research papers from the 1890s looking into bacteria. Usually it's looking at cause of death. For me, that's one of the fascinating aspects of forensic microbiology in general is end of 19th century, early 20th century, it seemed to get a lot of attention. 
And then due to technological limitations, it really just stagnated for a while. And then we hit 21st century, and now we're sequencing a microbiome, and now everybody's interested in it again. Sure. So it's really yeah. fun Exciting. to be a part yeah. of yeah. Like, almost a renaissance of a, an old field of science. Well, oh, that's cool that you're aware of that. That's I love good. it. And as anybody who listens to the podcast knows, we're going to be making available your talk from yesterday, so they'll be able to listen to that. But what's next for you with respect to this research work? Well, we have another NIJ project that's currently running now that's more focusing on the decomposition side. So really top priority now would be seeing that through to the end and getting that finished in a timely manner. That's a, a really exciting project, quite possibly the first of its kind, where we've partnered with three human decomposition facilities. And that's what I think is the novel approach about it. We're getting multiple human decomposition facilities and sampling the microbiomes from those decomposing remains there. University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Sam Houston State University, and Colorado Mesa University. Geographically different areas and seeing how do these post-mortem microbiomes differ based on geography, climate, season. So that's really kind of the top of our priority list now. Moving forward on the trace side, where I see things going for us is continuing to develop more of these fundamental understandings of relationships between touch and transfer. But I also think we're going to be looking into what you might call the functional side of the microbiome. You know, everybody's really focusing on structure. What is there? Yeah. But one of the things that has kind of been a hurdle for microbiology forever is linking structure with function. So one thing that we'd really like to start looking into is looking into metabolites that are also on the surface of skin. Some of those can be used to determine if people are using certain cosmetics. Maybe they're taking certain drugs. And I think having a way to link those two structural and functional components together would be a really nice, robust way forward. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad to see that you're continuing to get some uh, NIJ funding so that we can get you back into the research symposium and I hope on the so. podcast again. I hope so. I really hope so. Get your students listening to Just Science. It's a great way to get a broader perspective on forensic science, forensic science research, and what's going on in the, in the field. It really is very valuable for some of those younger folks to learn about Edmund Locard and how it relates to some things that are going on today. Agreed. Yes, sir. Okay. I will do it. Thank you for being on Just Science. Uh, David O. Carter. Thank you for having me. Next week, Just Science speaks with Dr. Shamsi Berry from the University of Mississippi Medical Center about her research with standardizing a large-scale, whole-body CT image database. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.